We're going to be in verses 14 through 23, and this is uh, at the, the Last Supper when the Lord institutes uh, communion. This, then, is the, the Word of God. When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that I will, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table for the son of man goes as as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's pray this evening. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this evening uh, from your, your word. We pray that as we come and gather that we would be reminded of the blood that was shed on the cross, that your body uh, was broken. We do pray with all of our hearts that you would indeed this evening uh, lead us to the cross, that we would understand it afresh, that you would renew our faith and, and lift us up. And as we Wait for Sunday morning, we would be reminded how you defeated death on the cross and rose again from the dead on the third day. But in that intervening time, you truly were dead. You truly were in the tomb. And so, Lord, we praise you for for your working of redemption. We praise you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and lift up his name. Amen. As I said, we want to focus tonight on the cup. And so we're going to, in the middle of the evening, take communion. And as sort of the setup for communion, if I can say that, we want to talk about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Specifically, this language here, you'll notice in verse 20, the cup of the new covenant. It says, and likewise, after supper, he had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Those of us who are maybe not familiar with Passover, you might not know this, uh, but when uh, Jewish individuals celebrate a Passover Seder, uh, there are four cups that they partake of during the service. And each cup needs to be uh, poured out completely. You need to drink all that is in it. And so this is probably here the third cup, the cup after the meal uh, that Jesus is talking about. But notice that this is what Jesus has come for. This is his reason for being here. In fact, he sets it up with saying this in verse 17. Take this and divide it among yourselves. And I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to establish the reign of God. And in that reign, he accomplishes our salvation. And so he's looking here forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the Lord Jesus returns and he eats with his whole bride, the church redeemed. And in that intervening time, he is dwelling in heaven even right now. And so then he takes a part of the bread that is left from the meal. 
and he breaks it up. And you may remember from Passover, they're remembering through the Passover meal the redemption that they had as God brought them out of Egypt. And as God brought them out of Egypt, he established the first covenant with them. He gives them the law. And you remember Moses ascends up into uh, Mount Sinai and is given the law and comes down and they inaugurate that covenant. Jesus is inaugurating a greater covenant at this meal. Jesus is, is accomplishing the redemption on the cross that, that the first covenant pointed forward to. So Hebrews 9.15 says this, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. The language there of the first covenant is a reference to the law. That each one of us has has gone astray, as we read from Isaiah 53. Each one of us has has broken God's law, has sinned against the commands of God. All we like sheep have gone astray, as the scriptures say. And so the Lord Jesus Christ comes to redeem us specifically from the transgressions of the law. And to do this, he, he doesn't just redo the Old Covenant. He doesn't just reinstitute it and say, okay, now you have to, to keep the law and, and try to do better this time around. He actually inaugurates something new, a new covenant, which I submit to you in the scriptures is uh, better, if you will, than the first covenant. And so Hebrews 9 continues in, in chapter or in verses 18 through 20, again, chapter 9, 18 to 20. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And when every commandment of the law had been declared to Moses, to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he, and he sprinkled the blood and all the people saying, this blood of the covenant, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. That's an allusion to Exodus chapter 24. And it's after Moses has come down from the mountain and they have uh, established this covenant. They have gotten the the word of God. And Moses takes the blood of of calves and goats. And and in our germ-fearing society, this kind of sounds uh, disgusting. But all the people of God are gathered around. He has laid out this sacrifice, and then he, he solemnizes or inaugurates or puts into effect the covenant by walking around and sprinkling the blood upon them. It's a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of, of cleansing. It's a symbol of, of the covenant being instituted. And in those moments, the people of God actually pledge, we will obey the words of the covenant. In fact, Moses had just read them, and so they've heard them, and, and they're, they're pledging to obey. It's, it's almost like a pledge of allegiance. Uh, like when you become, uh, if you come from another country and you become a, a citizen in the United States, you have a, a swearing-in ceremony. You pledge allegiance and you you transfer your citizenship. Well, in this covenant, God makes Israel his people. He he finalizes it, if you will, through this blood. Exodus 24, 8 says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
But Jesus is saying the Passover cup symbolizes not just starting a covenant, but starting a new covenant. It doesn't take you very long in reading the Old Testament to realize that that even under the law, God's people wander astray. Even as God has taken them uh, as his bride, they, they commit spiritual adultery. They, they wander from him. And that's why we have these wonderful promises in places like Isaiah 53 of, of the suffering servant who will die. The, the promise in, in Jeremiah is this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's, it's a, a redoing, if you will, that I will be their God and they will be my people. But it's, a, it's an increasing that God will finally and fully wash away the sins. And Israel's problem was even when she knew what to do, she didn't do it. Our problem as, as individuals, even when we know how we should walk and live before God, we don't do it. And we need redemption. We need the forgiveness of sins. We need the blood of the new covenant to be shed. The promise again of the new covenant in Ezekiel. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you the new heart and I will put my spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and careful and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus at the Last Supper is telling his disciples, he's telling us, I I'm going to accomplish that redemption. Through me, through my new covenant, you will receive the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Your sins will be finally and fully washed away so that all of those things that they did repeatedly as the patterns in the Old Testament, all of those things pointed forward to what God was going to do in Christ. And Jesus at the supper is saying, I will do that. And how will he do that? He will do it through the cup of his blood. Hebrews tells us that every covenant is inaugurated with sacrifice. Moses started this first covenant with a sacrifice and he was on behalf of God cleansing the people. But Jesus is the true and final sacrifice. We need to know That Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. And as you think about that language, the cup of the new covenant, you are reminded of the blood of Jesus Christ that was truly shed on the cross almost 2,000 years ago. As Jesus was dying on the cross, the full weight of God's wrath and condemnation against sin was poured out on Jesus. And Jesus exhausted it. Just as you would take a cup and and pour it out or a Passover, you would completely empty it. 
so also Jesus bore the full cup of God's wrath. Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace. We're going to come now, and the guys are going to come, and we're going to take uh, communion. We're going to pass out these elements. We're going to do it a little bit uh, different this evening. Uh, We're going to pass out the bread and partake of it, but we're also going to sing a song between. If I could get Carl uh, and Jeff to come on up. Now, uh, verses 39 through 46. Luke 22, uh, 39 through 46. This is now... Uh, after the Lord's Supper, this is late Thursday night, uh, after uh, they've gone into the Garden of, of Gethsemane. And he went out, it says, he came out and went, as was their custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the second time that Jesus has referenced a cup. And in this passage, he's referring to bearing the wrath of God. Jesus takes the cup of suffering that God's wrath pours out. He knows he is going to the cross. He knows that in a few hours he will cry out a reference to Psalm uh, 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the full punishment for our sins is poured out in those hours upon Jesus. The first thing we want to note from this passage is that cup can be a metaphor in the Old Testament for a portion or an allotment. So, for example, we might say to someone, this is my lot in life or this is the way it goes. It's a a metaphor or description of something that God has for us, a portion, if you will. Psalm 16:5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. In Psalm 116, verse 13, you, you, it refers to a cup of salvation. In Psalm 23, as you know, he describes the, the cup that overflows. It's a picture of God pouring out goodness in that passage. But we are reminded that God had a mission for the Lord Jesus, a cup, if you will. You'll see back in Luke 22, as we had already read over in verse 22, uh, for the son of man goes as it has been determined. Peter will say in Luke that, that the son of God, Jesus, was handed over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is Jesus's allotment. This is Jesus's cup. This is what Jesus came to do. It was not a surprise to Jesus. It was not a surprise to the heavenly father. This is the mission. 
Often in John's Gospel, Jesus talks about it being his hour. The main reason, the climax of his uh, purpose for being here is his death on the cross. But second, the biggest metaphor for cup in Scripture is the cup of judgment or the coming wrath of God. By far the largest metaphorical use of the idea of a cup is God pouring out punishment. Job chapter 21 verse 20 says, Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Psalm 75, verses 6-8, through 8, From the east and from the west, and not from the wilderness, comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For the hand of the Lord, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And He pours it out, and all the wicked on the earth shall drain it drown to the dregs. In some places in Scripture, for example, in Isaiah 51, it's, it's called a cup of staggering. And you can think of the imagery there. You can think of the metaphor. You know what happens if you drink too much wine. Hopefully you don't know that by experience. But, but you will stagger. You will stumble. You become drunk. Your, your, your brain functions don't work well anymore. You stagger along. And if you stagger hard enough, you fall down. You skin your knee. You bump your head. It's a painful experience. And so this cup is described as something being poured out. And the enemies of God in these passages have to drink it. And it's a a cup of staggering. It causes them to fall down. It causes them to come under the weight of their sin. Isaiah 51, verses 21 to 23 Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, he's speaking to Israel here. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And I will put it out on the hands of your tormentors who said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. You've made your back like the ground, excuse me. The imagery here in this passage is that God's people had gone into exile. They had suffered for their sins. The Lord had made them drink the cup. The Lord had made them drink the bowl. And the enemies of God laid out the people of God, trampled over them, both both metaphorically and literally, as they destroyed Jerusalem. And God says there's going to come a day where he brings his people back into the land, he redeems them, and he will judge the nations that punished. The idea is this Israel faced punishment for their sins, and he will take the cup that he poured out on them, and he will pour it out now on the nations as they are judged. It's this imagery over and over again in Scripture. Ezekiel 23 it's a, it's a parable of two sisters, which is a picture of the two nations of Israel, uh, the northern ten tribes Israel and the southern two tribes Judah. And it says this, you have gone the way of your sister. This is speaking of the younger sister Judah. Therefore, I will give her cup to you 
Thus saith the Lord, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large, and you shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You shall be filled with drunkenness of sorrow, a cup of horror, a desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. And you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your chest. For I have spoken, declares the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences for your lewdness and your whoring. We could go on and mention a few other passages, but you get the point. When God judges sin, he pours out a cup. And that cup is a picture of his wrath. It's a picture of the allotment of his judgment. And it often comes against God's people in the Old Testament as he judges their sin and wickedness. There's one other occasion in the Gospels that I think it's important to mention this idea of the cup. Remember when John and James and their their mother came to Jesus? You know, they were the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. And she says to Jesus, you know, let my boys sit at your right and left hand. Let them let them rule in the kingdom. And of course, we know the other disciples get upset. You know, how would you feel if if your uh, friend's mom went and pleaded with someone else to to get uh, extra special treatment? And this is what happens. And what does Jesus say? He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink. And he says, they say to him, James and John, in all their fire and and thunder, yes, we are. We can go through whatever you're going to go through, Jesus. And Jesus says this, you will drink my cup, but to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You think about James, the first martyr in the early church, and John suffering at various points in his ministry. And they did bear some suffering, but they can't ultimately bear the cup of God's full judgment for sin. They didn't understand yet what Jesus was going to go through on our behalf. And the question you need to ask yourself this evening is, do I understand? What Jesus did on the cross. That instead of me bearing my own sins. At times Israel is punished for her sins in the Old Testament. And instead of you and I bearing our sins in fullness. And and suffering under it. And being sent to eternal condemnation. The Lord Jesus comes to earth. And bears the full weight of that cup. And you can see it in this passage as he understands what is coming. He is in agony over it. It's fascinating here to me that it says there appears to him an angel from heaven to strengthen him. We often talk about how uh, Jesus was in such agony. He was sweating like drops of blood. And we talk about how perhaps blood vessels were breaking and it's pouring out. But, But what's fascinating to me is Jesus went 40 days in the wilderness without food and the angels didn't need to show up until the end. Uh, If I went five days without food, I'd be calling for angels to come and minister to me. How much was the intensity that Jesus faced in this moment? If he could go 40 days without 
eating and fasting and and be tempted by Satan and resist. And then when he was done, the angels could come. How much more is Jesus's agony here in these moments, knowing what is ahead as the angels need to come and minister to him and encourage him and strengthen him? It shows us the full weakness of the Son of God in his humanity, that he truly cries out to God. It is not faking it here. He is suffering, if you will, as he anticipates the shame and the weight of God's wrath for our sin. And he even prays that mysterious prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You see in verse 37 of our passage, Jesus had says, For I tell you, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. And He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about Me has its fulfillment. Jesus really does bear the weight of sin. The Scriptures say God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. The full weight of the punishment is coming down in these moments as the cup of God's wrath is poured out. Jesus is, in a sense, of two minds here. He doesn't look forward to the cross in the sense of of being excited about the pain and the suffering and the shame. Scripture tells us that he endured the cross despising the shame. He's not a a sadist taking pleasure as they, they beat him and torture him and put the thorn of crowns Uh, the crown of thorns on his head. And yet he is wholly in these moments yielded to his Father. Not my will, but yours be done. We see here again the, the full humanness of the Son. As he cries out, as Hebrews 5, 7 says, to the one who is able to save him from death. And so we know that the Lord Jesus is committed to obeying the Father. He is committed to carrying out God's plan and and saving us who trust in Him. John 17, again, another prayer that Jesus prays uh, during the, the period of the Last Supper. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, speaking of the disciples and believers, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundations of the world. Again, John 17 verses 9 through 12. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All that is mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as you are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that Scripture might be fulfilled. The Father and the Son had planned this mission from before the foundations of the world. And the Son in these very hours and into the Garden of Gethsemane and up onto the cross is fulfilling it. 
And he delights in obeying the Father. It says again in Hebrews 12 too, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy is the obeying of the Father. The joy is the outcome that He redeems a people. The joy is that the Father glorifies Him and He glorifies the Father. But He really does suffer under the full weight of this cup. And this cup was what should have been poured out on us. And this cup This shedding of blood is the cup of the new covenant in His blood. So that where He pays for sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There is forgiveness of sins. There is redemption for those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures say in Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself partook likewise of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. As we finish tonight, we want to leave you with a sense that Jesus Christ died. He died. The full condemnation for our sins is paid for on the cross. The death that we deserved, Jesus died. We're going to close in prayer, and then we're going to end with a simple reading of Scripture. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening and we think of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Impress upon us that he bore the wrath that we deserved. Impress upon us that this cup of his shed blood establishes and accomplishes and achieves the forgiveness of sins. Something that we do not deserve, but yet you have so freely offered it to us and accomplished it through your grace. Oh, we praise you, Lord Jesus. We can't even begin to imagine what it was like in the Garden of Gethsemane, let alone on the cross. And yet you willingly obeyed your Father, trusting Him even in your darkest hours. And you exhausted the curse of sin in those hours of darkness on the cross. In Jesus' name, we just thank you so much. Amen. Take your Bibles and